You know, today we're talking on a, a subject that is really difficult. Can I just start with those words? The doctrine of the Trinity. We're in a series on doctrine, and the reason that we're doing this is because the Bible says in the book of Ephesians that many are tossed to and fro, back and forth, by every wind of doctrine. In other words, every time somebody hears something new, every time somebody thinks they got an understanding of the Word of God, some people are just swayed back and forth and don't know what the Bible teaches, have really never kind of put their arms around what the Word of God has to say on some really, really important and vital subjects. Now, the practicality of the Trinity is something you might go, well, how does that relate to me? I believe that. I'm not sure I could explain it. Nobody can, by the way. In fact, you might find yourself losing your mind trying to explain it, which may explain me a little bit, all right, that he lost his mind trying to explain it today. But, um, but when you begin to, to put your arms around it and see the practicality of it, it, it really comes down to this idea of community. Think about it like this. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in community. We might even say, in some in one way, they are like the first community group. They have all the right qualities of people who come together in unity, in love, and in fellowship, and don't, on the other hand, don't have the problem that we have, and that is we have to wrestle with our own weaknesses and sins and our difficulties and our misunderstandings. This past week, we had the opportunity to invite into our home couples that have recently had babies, and we've had 15 babies in the last uh, eight months or so. And so we had six or seven of those couples come to our house, and it was really wonderful to, to walk in and, and just to see all these little babies lined up in our house. And it's exciting, and it's, it's interesting, and it's fun, and especially because they can't go anywhere. They're just, everybody's holding them and looking at them, and they're all wonderful and all cute and all of that kind of stuff. And we're going to continue to build those communities into, around people and, and where they are in their life stage. But I watched this dynamic unfold of people who didn't know each other. Look into the eyes and say, I understand what you're going through. I can relate to what you're talking about. I know what it's like to have a sleepless night. I know what it's like to not know what to do when they're crying and all you do is walk and pace and, and change and do all that other stuff and it's part of community. It's part of what God made us for. We are meant for community. And we're going to see the practical outworking of that in this message today as we talk about this subject of the Trinity. A number of questions come up when I talk to people Well, about the Trinity. Here's one of them. What is the Trinity? Well, first of all, know that the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. It's actually a theological term that's used to describe what we easily relate to, and we say the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll drill down into that in a little bit. Another question is, what about other gods? Aren't there other gods in the world, and, and how do those gods play into, into this whole great picture of the one true God? Well, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about it, but one of the most interesting passages is found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32 and verse 17. It says, they sacrifice to demons. Talking about 
these worshipers of other gods, and not to God, to gods they did not know. You see, the Bible couldn't be clearer on the subject. We're living in a day when everybody wants to kind of embrace all the gods of the world, kind of bring them in and say, well, isn't everybody kind of right, and aren't we all going to the same place? If that statement is true, then Jesus was wrong. Because Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus himself said, no one is going to get to God the Father unless he comes through this Jesus way. Now that may seem narrow-minded, but you can be narrow-minded if you're God. Amen? If you're God, you get the right to be narrow-minded. Well, here's another question. Does the Bible refer to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as being God? And the answer is yes, and we're going to show you that as we process through this. Here's kind of a summary of what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Number one is that God is three persons. Now, what makes this so difficult is the idea that we have one being, God, but we have three persons. We are one being and one person. Now, the dynamic of that just begins to already hurt your head. How does that work? And I'm going to show you some different views that people have regarding this doctrine of the Trinity. Second thing is each person in the Trinity is God. So we say the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. It's not divided up so that it's one-third God, one-third God, one-third God. It's not God manifesting himself into three different ways. Are we hurting you bad enough yet? Okay, it'll only get worse, I promise. And then this truth, the Bible affirms there is only one God. Now, let me show you this diagram, and maybe this will kind of help to put it in perspective, at least the way we're talking. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is God. Now, when you begin to think about this, that that somehow God, in all of His majesty, is far more complex than us. We can accept that. We can understand that. I remember having a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness a number of years ago, and, and she said, there's no way that three can be one. And I just asked a simple question. I said, would you agree that God has no limitations? Yes, I would agree that God has no limitations. That God can do anything he wants. I would agree with that. If God wanted to be three, could God be three persons and one being? Now, you see, the dilemma here is I have to push my my belief system out of the way or I have to push the all-powerful, mighty God out of the way. I can't embrace both. It's an impossibility. So forced with that, what we typically do is we'll go with our beliefs rather than with a biblical understanding or a basis of what we believe. You'll see people who say, I know the Bible says that, but this is what I think. And what they're really saying is, the Bible's not valid, I am. And that's why doctrine becomes so important. Do you realize the way that the enemy gets us the quickest is with our doctrine, and he gets us confused, and we don't know any of these doctrines, a a doctrine of love, for example. What if you're confused on a doctrine of love? Well, then all love seems good. All love seems right. 
So as we begin to go into this, I want to show you some scriptures. And here's the first one in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist. Now what you're going to notice in this passage is that all three persons of the divine trinity are mentioned in one paragraph. Let's look at it together. When he had been baptized, Jesus, there's the Son, came up immediately out of the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God, there's God the Spirit, descending like a dove and alighting on him, and suddenly a voice from heaven, there's the Father, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That threefold formula you'll find many times. You'll find it even in the baptism that we talk about in Matthew 28, where he says, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you see this is repeated. This is something that the early church believed from the very beginning. It wasn't something that rose up in the 4th or 5th century or in the, or in the last 20 years. It's something that has been with the church for the beginning. Another passage, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. This is probably the clearest passage in the Word of God on the subject. Unfortunately, many of the newer translations have, have chosen to delete this verse to, altogether. You might look in your Bible and go, well, it doesn't even exist. What kind of Bible do I have? Well, you need a new one. Clearly, you need a new one. You see, here's the thing that we have to understand. The first attack that Satan brought against Adam and Eve was on the Word of God. Has God said was the question. Did God really say that? Or did you just think that's what God said? Is the Bible authoritative or not? So when we go to this passage, look what it says. For there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit and these three are one. I don't know if a passage is clear. I mean, throughout Scripture, if we actually dealt with all the Scriptures that dealt with the Trinity, we would probably be here for, for the next week. Because the Bible is just replete on every corner telling us who God is, who the Father is, who the Son is, who the Holy Spirit of God is. So let's talk about the Trinity a little bit. And first we're going to talk about the idea of unity, of unity. Only one true God. Now, do you remember when you first met God? Or you had an awareness of God? How many of you have that recollection? You were, you, maybe you were six years old and you just were afraid. Well, I'm going to tell you a story to me that illustrates when I think I first met God in kind of a funny, humorous kind of a way. I was six years old. We were living in Augusta, Georgia. And my mother went down the street and she was having coffee at some friend's house. And my little buddy came over and he said to me, let's go in the shed and look at, see what your dad has. So we went back there and there was a shed. And these are the days, you know, when you leave the six-year-olds at home and they're fine, right? And they make movies about them later, like Home Alone. <laughs> so we went back in the shed and we're looking around and, we're, and, and he says, what's that? And I said, that's paint. And he says, paint? I said, yeah, it's my dad's paint. He said, let's see it. And so we got it down and we talk, took the top off of it. Now that was when all paint was oil-based. And that's really important for this story I'm getting ready to tell you, all right? So it's oil-based paint, and so we took the lid off, and it was that silver aluminum paint, if you can remember that. So we took the lid off, and the little boy said, let's paint ourselves silver, like the Tin Man on the Oz. And I go, I, I don't think we should do that. I, if I get clothes, you know, paint on my clothes, I'm going to get in trouble. 
And, and the little boy said, and it seemed like it made sense. Have you ever been in those situations where that makes sense? Let's just take all our clothes off and paint ourselves silver. So we strip everything down, and we began the process of painting one another completely silver. And when I say every square inch, I mean every square inch. And then we were in such joyful moments there that we just decided to run up and down the street showing everyone our newfound freedom as the silver streak. So up and down the street we went when one of the ladies that was having coffee with my mother looked out and said, there's two naked boys running down the road and they're painted completely silver. My mother looked out and saw me and she said, and one of them's mine. I remember I met God that day. I'm not sure whether it was in the tone of my mother or whether it was in the can of turpentine that she had to use to rub the silver paint off me that left me blistering red through the whole experience. But I met God. I've had more pleasant encounters with God since that time, I might add, and and I have never repeated that. So it was a lesson well learned. I would not recommend that to you or to your children either. But here's what the Bible says. There's only one true God. And here's what it says, Deuteronomy 4.35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God and there is none other besides him. There's one God. There's not many gods. There's one God. That God is revealed to us in Scripture as Father. And I won't belabor the idea of Father because essentially nobody calls into controversy whether or not God is Father. We understand Him as Father because we we relate to the concept of Father. Even if we've had bad fathers growing up, we understand the good qualities of a father, and we even say to ourselves, well, I'll be a better father than my father was. But Scripture says in John 6.25, it simply says, God the Father. That's a title that He's given in Scripture. Now, when we go to the Son... Jesus Christ, look what it says in John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you read down further in verse 14, it says that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So Scripture says the Word, this living Word, is God, And this living word became man, took on human flesh, and he became the God-man. John chapter 8 and verse 58 and 59 is an interesting passage because the way Jesus frames this whole discussion. Jesus said unto them, Most assuredly I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now to the Jews, this meant everything. He was calling himself, I am. He was taking them back to the book of Exodus chapter 3 where God appeared before Moses there at the burning bush. And when Moses said to him, who do men say that I, or not who do men say that I am, but who shall I say when they ask who sent me? And he says, just tell them the I am sent you. The God of very God sent you. So when Jesus says this here, he's saying, I am God of very God. That, That tells you why they responded to the way they did. Notice what they did. Then it says they took up stones to stone him, to throw at him. But Jesus himself went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Why did they want to pick up stones? Because he was claiming to be God of very God, and that was blasphemy. In fact, why was he crucified? Not because he claimed to be the Messiah, 
but because he claimed to be God of very God. Do you know what happens when you say these words, when they come out of your mouth audibly? Jesus is God. You absolutely put all the demonic spirits in disarray because you are making a proclamation of who this Jesus is. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just a prophet. He's not just this man that did good things. He is God, a very God. What about the Holy Spirit? Another interesting passage. This happened in the early church. This is, this is something you don't want to have happen to you. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Local church there is starting to form and shape, and it's going through all of its twists and turns, as new churches always do and as old churches always do. And so there's a gen- great generosity that's coming, and people are, are, are combining their wealth, and they're giving, and they're trying to make this thing happen in, in this first century. And so the Bible says, as Ananias' wife, they decided they would give something, but then they were going to act like they gave it all, and they really didn't. And it was really in their possession. It was, they could do whatever they wanted to do with it, but they chose to do something. And notice what Scripture says. But Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, it's interesting here because the lying here is to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say to the Father, to the Son. And that's going to be the basis for understanding this, all right? And to keep back part of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not yours, your own? And when it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. So Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Then later he says, you've lied to God. So you see that as you go through this, you can see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we've given you a sample of some verses. But as you dig deeper into it, you'll begin to see this divine mystery. And that's what I want to talk to you about now, the divine mystery of the Trinity. There is something very mysterious about God. Would we all agree? I mean, you kind of you think you got God figured out, then you read more Scripture. You think you know it all, then you read more Scripture. Then you mature in life, and you go through this process of, of trying to understand who God is. I want you to think about this. God is like you, and He is nothing like you. His ways are like yours in some ways, but really, mostly, they're totally unlike you. Because God stands apart. He is totally unique. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but this divine three that we see here also has a reflection in us because you're creating the image of God. Guess what? God made you body, soul, and spirit. You see, you have this earthly body called an earth suit, right? And housed within this body is your soul and your spirit that allows you to relate to God. And so it's, you're more than this, this human body. But God made you like him in that he made you body, soul, and spirit. Then when God wanted to allow you to function in this world properly, he said, I want you to understand this divine mystery of three, so I'm going to create time. You see, time only exists in creation, not in eternity. Eternity is always now. You don't have eternity past. There's no such thing as eternity past. Eternity is always present tense. That's why you don't age. Good news, right? In heaven. There is no past, there is no process of aging because there's no time. So he created time in that divine three. He said there's going to be past, present, and future so you understand something about the way I've created my world. When you get out your paintbrush and you want to paint all these different colors in the world and they become more complex as time goes on, he said, but I'm going to give you just three primary colors to start with. 
And you're going to make every color that you know from those three. When you want to see something about signs and seasons and days and years and months, I want you to look to the three signs that I've put in the heavens. The sun, the moon, and the stars. And those are going to teach you something about my divine order. Why, even Jesus, when he ministered to people, do you realize he raised three people from the dead? Not four, not two, but three. Why would he do that? Each one of them have a unique dimension that points to who he is. When God wants us to understand something about the importance of the number three, it says that he was crucified on the third hour. Why, when you go into the book of Proverbs, there's three words that constantly appear there, and they always appear together or very close to together, and that's the word wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Because you see, each one of those represent a person in the Godhead. The wisdom speaks to the Father. The knowledge to the Son, and the understanding to the Holy Spirit. And so when you begin to understand that for you and I, we need to understand wisdom and knowledge and understanding in our life we need to grow in that idea of what it means there's secret things of god have you ever thought about that you ever had a ever known a secret remember when you're a kid and say i want to tell you a secret and that was the guarantee that it would never stop you ever you ever you know that i'm going to tell you a secret and you told all your friends don't tell anybody because this is a secret you know they even had when i was growing up they had rings that were decoder rings and they were secret rings And everything is about secret. But you know, God has secrets. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. See, he was the first one to keep a secret. He was also the first one to let it leak. Look what it says. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever and ever. Here's what it says. God has some things he's not shown you yet. When he gets ready... To show you something, he shows it to you, and he opens up your mind, he opens up your heart to know greater things of who God is. All the way back to Genesis 1.26, look what it says. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Who's the us? Not angels, he didn't make man after the image of angels. Who's the us? And here we see this early glimpse of this trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, let's talk about some false views of the Trinity, and this is going to be where you can just kind of practically look and see how does this thing work out. And and these are terms you say, I don't really want to know these terms, but at least you're going to be introduced to them. Here's the first one called modalism. Modalism simply means that God expresses himself in three forms or manifestations. Do we have anybody that believes that today? We do. They're called United Pentecostal Church of America. They don't believe in the Trinity. What they believe is that there's one God, and he just is a manifestation, almost a phantom of all these other things. Second one is Arianism. This came out of the the early 4th century, but the idea is that Jesus is a created being, and the Holy Spirit is simply a force and not a person. And you see that really kind of manifests itself out in Jehovah's Witnesses. That's kind of what they teach. Also, Star Wars right? Well, it's kind of the idea. Have you ever noticed how Hollywood is one of the greatest commentaries, either good or bad, on the Bible? Because every great movie is based on the Bible. Would any of y'all agree with that or not? A few of you would. Let me tell you how I know that. Every great movie has a good guy, a bad guy, and a girl, right? And the bad guy is always trying to do what? Get the girl. Kill the girl, 
isolate the girl, do something bad to the girl. And the bad guy, and the good guy is always trying to kill the bad guy, right? And the bad guy can only die how many times? Three times. Do you know how many times before Satan is finally put in the bottomless pit? Three times. The good guy is God. The, the woman in the, in the story is Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. And Satan is bound and determined he is going to crush Israel. Look what he did to the Jews all through the centuries, trying to kill and exterminate and crush the Jews. Even today, that controversy continues in the Middle East, does it not? And what is Satan trying to do to the church? He's trying to crush the church and convince the church that she is not all-powerful, that she is not the church empowered by God himself. Leonard Ravenhill tells a story of Satan. He is gathered around and he's looking at a map of the church. But then it quickly, the scene quickly moves over to Napoleon. And Napoleon, that, that French dictator, uh, military leader, he's looking at a church, uh, he's looking at a map of the world and, and all of his generals say, let's go into China, let's take China. Napoleon looked at him and said, no, leave China alone. There lies a sleeping giant. If China ever understands her, her manpower and her great resources and her wealth, she will be an unstoppable army in the world. And then the scene goes back to Satan, and he's looking at a map of the church. And the demons say to Satan, let's go into the church and let's create havoc and let's destroy him. No, 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 no. Let's just let him become complacent. Let's let them not walk in the power of the Spirit. Let's just let them think that Christianity is a nice cultural game that they can play. Let's let Christianity be a hobby for them. Instead of walking in the fullness of the power of the Spirit of God, instead of taking God's Word and saying, this is the Word of God, this is true, and we'll stand on this Word. I was so grateful to read the article of the rear admiral of the Coast Guard when he, on the National Day of Prayer, he took a stand. He said, I left my notes at my, back at my seat because I wanted to share what was on my heart. This was just last week. And he said, I want to tell you about a soldier who came to me. He came to me in despair, and, 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 and at times he seemed suicidal. And I knew that, that I could send him to a psychologist, and in fact, I would recommend that. But what I did was the first order is I gave him a Bible and I told him about Jesus Christ and I told him there was hope in the world and do not despair. And amidst a crowd of clapping people, shouting and affirming him, he was later brought up under disciplinary action at the national prayer breakfast or day of prayer because he suggested that someone would read the Word of God. But he said, I will not apologize and I will not recant what I said about the Word of God and about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, may God increase the tribe of people like that. May you and I be people like that in our workplace, in our school, wherever we go. Say, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And we're going to follow Him, and we're going to do His will, and we're going to go down that road, regardless what it costs, regardless what happens. 
Because don't be surprised, Acts chapter 20 says, you know, there's going to be enemies that are going to come against you from the outside and against you from the inside, but you have to know who you know and what you believe about God and about God's word and about God's truth because we're living in a day, friend, where you're not hearing a lot of series on doctrine. You're hearing a lot of sermons on, hey, how can you feel better? How can you get this and do that? And it's so Christian light. Is it any wonder that the, in, in the end days the Bible says that many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons? Is it any wonder that that's going to happen? When we don't know what we believe and we don't take a stand for Jesus Christ, men, I want to tell you here on Mother's Day is it's time to stand up and be men. To be men of God. I challenge the men on Monday night. We'll be meeting Monday night again this week. Talking about the mysteries of God. But I want to challenge you to be a man of God. I want to challenge you like I challenge those men at that Monday night study where we have 80 to 100 guys that show up. Look yourself in the mirror and say, I am a man of God. And see if your eyes go down. Do you see yourself as a man of God? If you don't, start calling yourself what you are, a man of God. And then start becoming, in reality, what you are, what God says you are. You're a man of God. You were set apart for a holy purpose, to stand for God. You see, the church is designed to infiltrate the realms of impossibility. That's why we exist, to go where nobody else goes. Yesterday, I did a wedding. You may remember on Easter when I announced that Katie, Amet, had been cured of ovarian cancer. That was the week before Easter. It's only been a month. And there she stood in her beautiful gown. There her fiancé, Carlos, exchanging vows. And I'm telling you, this Dutchman shed a tear. I had to cry because I'm standing in front of a miracle of God, that God healed somebody of cancer in our church. And it was only a year ago. On Easter, we had another healing. And, and I'm just saying, God, you're doing so many miraculous things in our midst. May the God have just continued to drive us to impossibility in the power of Almighty God. It's this idea in the Trinity of relationship. I don't know of a passage that speaks more of relationship between the Godhead and between us than John 17. Look at this. Jesus is praying now. And he says this, I do not pray for these alone, talking about his disciples, but also for those who will believe me through their word. So he saw these disciples as those who were going to take the word of God everywhere they went. That they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us. Here's what he said. What I'm praying is that you and you and you and I were one. We understand that we're the family of God. You say, well, I don't know if I like that guy over there. Well, get used to him. He's going to be in eternity with you. Have you ever thought about that? Well, it'll all be better then. Well, what makes you think it's going to be all better then? There's something wrong with the theology that says, I'll perfect all your meanness there. Maybe God's going to isolate you in a corner. Right? How about that? You haven't heard about that one. Well, it's not in the Bible. I know, but it should be, Right? Look what he says, though. That they may also be one. And here's why. You know why our oneness is so important? Look what it says. That the world may believe that you sent me. 
You know, the more that we love each other, the more that we get along, the more that we agree. You know what the world goes? How do they do that? How do they work through that? How do they love like that? How do they respond like that? I mentioned earlier that Tuesday night, I think it was, we had, we had all these couples over. And before we did that, we, we opened our home up so John and, and, and Kellett and Emily and all those, they could come and they get it, get the party started because we had to go to another gathering of our Dave Ramsey group that were just kind of celebrating their last hoorah. And so it was 6.30 there and then back to my house at a quarter to eight. It was a busy night, but I wouldn't have missed it for the world. We got there. We were having a great time there at the Carlson's home. And, and as we're sharing and everything and all the chairs are gone and, I, and the kids are over there. And so I'm over there keeping the kids busy kind of little, relate to them pretty well. You know, I'm kind of childish myself. And I was just kind of watching as all these couples sitting around this table who've spent all these weeks together getting to know each other, sharing financial burdens and hopes and dreams and all that stuff that goes on with it. And there I'm privileged just to step back, watch, and hang out with kids and do my magic tricks because they're the only ones that I fool. If you're under four, I can do a magic trick. If you're over that, we're out of luck. And I watched that and I said, you know, this is what it's about. And then to walk into our home and it's full of babies and kids and dirty diapers and all kinds of cool stuff. And to go, this is what it's all about. This is what he's talking about here. That the world may believe that you sent me. And look at verse 22. This is really interesting, guys. I, I never really quite saw it in this light, but I want you to go back and study this a little deeper in verse 22. And the glory which you gave me. Okay, the Father gives glory to the Son, right? Now watch what else it says. I have given to them. See, God gave glory to the Son, and the Son gave glory to you. See, God's glory is on you and in you. And here's why. That they may be one just as we are one. You know what happens? When I look into you and you and you, and I see a bit of the glory of God, I overlook all the human all your frailties, all your faults. I mean, anybody here perfect? If you are, you're dismissed because we don't have anything for you. (laughs) See, the church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a museum to preserve piety. It's where we come because we know we need God. Amen? We know we don't got it all together. We all think everybody around us has it together but us. People tell me all the time, well, I'm kind of like the worst sinner in the bunch. Oh, no, I know some others that are worse. (laughs) Trust me. Trust me. Really? Look, we're all on this journey together. I have given that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and I have loved them as you have loved me. One thing never fails, love, right? See, God has placed us with this capacity and this desire for relationship. We love to be together. I mean, I love to walk into that lobby and see everybody gathering around, getting coffee, getting a donut, you know, getting some popcorn, some nachos, whatever they're getting there in the lobby. And you just see this dynamic happening. We love to communicate. People love to talk. Some people talk more than others. But we love to talk, don't we? Well, tell me, what do you think? Well, let me tell you what I think. Why is that? Because that's how we draw close to one another. We love to share love and share joy and share sorrow. 
especially sorrow. We love to talk about that and what, what hurts us. And we like to, because there's something that's very healthy about just kind of letting loose with some stuff. Amen? We love to eat together. We were really good at that. We love to laugh together. It's amazing the things that are funny. And it's always funnier in church. Have you ever noticed that the things you're not supposed to talk about in church are always funnier? And, you know, and when you're supposed to be quiet and somebody's noisy, it's always funnier. Just sustained laughter is the best laughter in the world. I mean, it's just amazing to me. People actually think that they can sit out there and I don't see what they're doing. It's hilarious. I see guys surfing, you know, passing notes. I mean, it's, it's great. I love it. Because you know what? It's real. It's family. It's family. Sometimes a person sleeps. I know it's shocking in my sermon. <laughs> you know, I know what's going on. It's not that the sermon's particularly bad. It's just you're particularly tired. That's how I live with it. Amen? You just kind of live with those kind of things. You go, oh, that's how it works. Okay, I get it now. We're made in the image of God, and we long for the same unity and fellowship that exists within God himself. One of the writers that I like, he's actually uh, the conductor for the Boston Philharmonic, and he wrote a book. He's not a believer. He's, he's a Jewish uh, follower of, 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 the, of the Hebrew Scriptures, but he wrote something that I thought was so eye-opening and so relevant to the church. Look what he says. When a person peels away layers of opinion and entitlement, and pride, inflated self-description. Others instantly feel connected. That's what the church is supposed to be. We just have to peel away the stuff. You know, we, we, get to, we think we have to put on a persona. We don't. We have to act a certain way. We don't. We need to be real, transparent people who pull away that stuff. And go, you know, I'm just one man. You're one man, one woman. And we, we are on this journey to find God and to love God and to, to somehow make life better and richer as we go on this journey together. That's what the church is supposed to be. That's why that church in the first century worked, guys. Because he said, we've got to do this. This is what's going to make it all better. Let me give you a few life applications. Here's the first one. God's call is a call to relationship. Call to friendship. It's a call to love God with all your heart and your mind, your soul, your strength. And then to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And what you have to do is just take a step in the direction of God. Just take one step. If you take the first step toward God, God will take you all the rest. But you have to say, God, I'm willing to move in that direction of, of loving you more. Getting to know you, God. Loving one another. Being in relationship. Being the church you've called us to be, God. That's what I want to be. Let's stand together and pray. Father, as we pray, we, we ask your heart to be our heart. That we can love like you love. That this complicated, difficult subject of the Trinity, Father, would, 
would bring us to the practical side of once we get through the theological, that we can get to the practical side, that we are meant for community. We are meant to be one. We are meant to love one another. And any time we don't love one another, God, it's, it's moving outside of this revelation of God that he has for us. I'm going to ask everyone here right now just to, just to ask the Spirit of God this. God, is there anything in my heart that needs to be stripped away that I can love? Is there anyone I'm not loving right now? God, give me a love for them. Is there anything I'm doing, God, that prevents this oneness and this unity and this love that, that the world needs to see so they can believe? Take it away, God. Is there any glory that I'm blocking, God, then strip it away. God, start with me. It's not about somebody else. It's about me. Would you just right now, in your own heart of hearts, maybe pray a prayer like this. Dear Lord Jesus, take all the stuff out of my life that keeps me from loving you and loving one another. Let me have a great picture and a a good picture of God this oneness, this unity, this love, this relationship that's so powerful and so vital to us all. And God, as we worship and as we sing, may we sing with one heart. May we sing with a loud voice, God, because we love you, not because we sing well, but because we love you. May they be shouts of praise and glory to our God who loves us, who right now puts his hand on your shoulder, Man, he puts his hand on your shoulder right now. He says, I love you. I love you, man of God. Stand strong. Be true. Love Jesus with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength as we worship him.